American Center and Penn Center USA West, uh, we'd like to welcome you to tonight's program. Uh, Penn is an international writers organization. Both centers are affiliates of the International, which is an association of writers, poets, playwrights, playwrights editors, essayists, and novelists. And there are uh, literally hundreds of centers all over the world, in Africa, the Americas, Asia, Australia, and in Europe. And we have outside literature from Penn, which we encourage you to pick up on your way out. Um, I am here in the capacity of as moderator. I used to work for Penn, and I was a bookseller before that, and now I'm a librarian at the reference desk at Pasadena Public Library. And I just want to say I think it's very fitting and appropriate that this program is held at this beautiful central library of the Los Angeles Public Library System. Um, some people have commented that libraries are uh, the people's universities, and I think tonight's program is a fitting uh, tribute to that observation. We have a great panel. We have uh, two writers who have authored books of fiction, poetry, and nonfiction. We have a literary agent. We have two people who work for publishers, one as an editor and one as a publicist. We have a bookseller that wonderful institution like libraries that makes it possible so that books can get into the hands of people. And uh, they all have worn and still wear many, many hats uh, over and above their paid jobs. And as you'll hear tonight, in most cases, uh, or in all cases, underpaid jobs. Um, they all volunteer their skills and talents in many capacities, and tonight's program is an example of that. I also want to mention that we're very honored to have one of the best independent booksellers represented here in the LA area. As you walked in and when you leave, stop by SL Wan Books, their table. SL Wan has two locations, one in Inglewood and one in a new uh, location in Altadena. Uh, they have books on publishing and they have both of our author's books. And our authors would be honored to sign books for you when you leave, so we encourage you to support the authors in the bookstore and, and, and stop by their booths and pick up some of their literature as well. Our format will be basically uh, each of our six speakers will make a brief presentation followed by any questions and comments that you and the audience have. And at that point also the uh, panelists will be able to respond to what they have said as well. Um, what I'm going to do is, uh, I've asked before the formal introductions, Marie Brown to say a few words about the important work of Penn American Center's Open Book Committee. Um, by the way, you have outside, and if you didn't get it, get it when you leave, please. It's, it's the Manifesto of the Open Book Committee, which I will read in just a second, and also a wonderful op-ed piece by Walter Mosley in the, the LA Times. Um, so I'm sure you'll forgive me for not giving uh, Maria a full introduction. I will do that in just a few minutes. Uh, but let me just read the manifesto and then have Maria say a few words about the Open Book Committee. Um, this is the Open Book Manifesto. The one and only real purpose of the Penn Open Book Committee is to open the world of publishing to the richness and diversity of the cultures that make up America. We want to see our literature, all of it, in the care of people who reflect the fine diversity of this nation. The mainstream publishing world has not been successful in bringing into its ranks 
men and women from all races. It's time for that situation to change. We're not here to indict publishers, but merely to give them a wake-up call. That call being for the hiring and training of editors, publishers, publicists, salespeople, designers, and other pu publishing professionals of color. We want to make sure that the shepherds of our language represent our population. We want to see all races on the cover of books, but we also want to know that they're behind the scenes, working through the long haul for future generations. To these ends, we want to spread the word. We want to talk to people in power and to the people who would be in power. We want to point our fingers and say, look there, in your own house. That's where the opportunity is. We want to make sure that the fruits of, our, of all cultures are shared by anyone with the will, the intelligence, and the desire to work for them. Reeves. Thank you, Richard. Um, as Richard mentioned, the Open Book Committee came about as a result of Walter Mosley's commitment to and recognition of the fact that um, there was very little or any diversity in editorial marketing sales or management in book publishing. Um, and no one had had a public discussion of this for at least 25 years. I mean, this was the most incredible fact. Um, I think a small history lesson is in order here. The last time that anyone made a concentrated effort to affect any change in book publishing was in the late 60s, early 70s, when um, Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, who was then the representative from Harlem and chairman of the Education Committee in the House, called together a subcommittee. At that subcommittee, um, Adam Clayton Powell um, challenged publishers to diversify their staffs. Um, he held hearings. Um, we're all familiar with how that works these days. And, but what was different about it, these were hearings that called in publishers and publishing professionals and challenged them to diversify their staffs as well as the lists of books that they were publishing and it worked. It worked in very serious ways. As a direct result, um, I came into publishing, and this was during the early days of affirmative action. 25 years later, here we are with Walter Mosley, who's a best-selling author, recognizing the fact that publishing is less diverse than it was 25 years ago. Um, the open book committee, our objective really is to establish a relationship between the publishing community and its working members, to identify and open doors for job opportunities. And that's not easy. Recently I visited a publishing house with an author, I visited seven actually with an author on a series of meetings with editors. And there were no people of color in editorial in seven publishing houses. No secretaries, assistants, associate editors, assistant editors, full editors, editors-in-chief, none. So that says as much about what this committee's challenge is and why those of us who are committed to diversifying publishing are here. This committee, under Walter's chairmanship, has worked steadily and deliberately 
and we continue to challenge the publishing industry. We've worked with Penn, with Maylin Ching, India Amos, and Karen Kennelly. And today's gathering and the others that are taking place in New York are a result of this effort. Um, and we hope that what we say to you will strengthen our presence in the publishing industry and make that difference. Um, we want to strengthen the commitment of all of you who are here and those of us who serve on the committee and to see that this happens. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Uh, our first uh, speaker will be Bibi Moore Campbell. Bibi uh, Moore Campbell is a writer. Her nonfiction work uh, has appeared in uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Ms. Magazine, Essence, Ebony, Adweek, amongst others. Uh, she's a writer of novels. Uh, she's been a regular contributor to National Public Radio. In 1989, she published Sweet Summer, Growing Up With and Without My Dad, her moving memoir about her childhood and her early adult life. In 1922, she published in 1922. <laughs> You're looking good, baby. Isn't this amazing? She's looking well. <laughs> 1992. Yes. Um, Sorry about that. In 18, no, 19, <laughs> in 1992, uh, Bibi published her first novel, Your Blues Ain't Like Mine. Her most recent novel is Brothers and Sisters. Bibi taught elementary and middle school for five years after graduating from the University of Pittsburgh with a degree in elementary education. She lives here in Los Angeles and she recently received the very prestigious NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work in Fiction. Please welcome Bibi Moore Campbell. Good evening, it's good to be here. I wanna, I've been charged with telling you guys how I got into publishing and some of the diversity issues that surrounded that. I look out uh, on this room and I was telling Marie, I said, now this looks like Los Angeles. I mean, there's some of everyone here, almost in our percentages. And if publishing looked like this room, we would not have this panel. Uh, and certainly, I would have gotten started a lot sooner than I did. Uh, I was talking last night with Marie, and we were sort of reminiscing, because uh, when I started out in the 70s, Marie was at Doubleday at the time, and I was looking for a literary agent, and she introduced me to the woman who was my literary agent for 10 years. And had I been her only client uh, through those 70s and through those 10 years, she would have starved because in that time she could not sell the two manuscripts that I came up with. It was, that was a time when uh, for African Americans, and I think we were probably more representative in literature than Latinos or Asians at that time because uh, we still had that post-civil rights writings, but even that had sort of dried up, and I can remember days talking on the phone to girlfriends saying, um, you think Tony will come out with anything? Uh, when's Alice going to write something? What about James Baldwin? Because these were the people we were waiting for, because those were the names we knew, and they kept being recycled, and they were <coughs> wonderful, but there was just not enough. Compared with now, 
we can't keep up with the amount of uh, literature that comes out of the African American community. And certainly we're seeing more from the Asian and the Latino communities and uh, the Native American communities as well. But again, we're looking at uh, the talent, so to speak. We're not looking at the man managers behind that, the people who actually do the choosing. And my problem in 19, what was it, 76, 77, when my uh, agent was trying to get my manuscript sold, was that there was no one who was understanding what I was trying to write. I was not Claude Brown talking about my childhood as a girl gang member. Um, I was writing about a warm family experience of a black girl coming up in America, and nobody got it. And she went from house to house, and the manuscript uh, got turned down. Um, so it had a direct impact because, because I could not be published uh, as a novelist uh, in 1976, I sort of segued into freelance writing because while there weren't a lot of opportunities for African-American novelists then, luckily, fortunately, Essence Magazine was created around that time. So that gave me an outlet for, um, for my writing. Uh, and it, it, it really helped me to hone my skins. And I, I went from Essence to a number of different other publications as well as newspapers and did that for about 10 years until finally I came back and tried again uh, with the same agent and doors had opened a little bit more when, uh, as a result of my magazine work in 1986, my first book, Successful Women, Angry Men, was published. And that was a result of a magazine article that I'd done for the now defunct magazine called Savvy. And that was not, um, it was racially neutral. It was about the two career marriage that was beginning to happen in great numbers in the United States and the strain that put on the, the partners and how some men reacted angrily to their wives having uh, self-actualized through their jobs or in some cases earning more money. So that was uh, what I did for Savvy and that later became a book. Once I got my foot in the door, I went around the bend. Again, I was getting turned down for novels, so I tried the memoir. And this time in 1989, that was accepted. But I say all that, again, to underscore the point of us being here this evening, and that is that without the people who first get the manuscripts, um, understanding, uh, knowing what you're trying to do, and, and seeing it as valuable, seeing your contribution as valuable, then whatever, uh, progress you can have is certainly going to be delayed until you find that right match. And I'm not saying that there are not well-intentioned uh, white Americans. There certainly are, and, and I'm standing here because I ran into a few of them. Uh, but I'm saying that overall, I think that people of particular cultures value their cultures more than outsiders do, and certainly understand them more than outsiders do, and therefore there is a need for that kind of uh, presence in publishing at, at the gate so that the, the door can swing open. Uh, once the door opened for me, I ran into other difficulties um, that were easier for me to deal with once I knew what I was up against. Uh, for example, with 
Successful Women, Angry Men, which was about white women and, and white men and black women and black men and Latinos and Asians all grappling with the concerns of two career marriages. When I went on a publicity tour, it was, it was not okay, but it was not disastrous that I did not get on any black radio stations or that I didn't have an interview with um, a lot of black publications because <coughs> this was a, um, a book that was geared to all people. When I wrote Sweet Summer, Growing Up With and Without My Dad, which was a memoir of my coming of age as a child of divorce growing up between two households uh, in uh, urban Philadelphia with my mother and my grandmother and my aunt and my cousin, and then in rural North Carolina with my father, it was disastrous that I did not get that I would not have gotten on black radio stations or that the black community did not know about this book. And when I realized that that was going to happen and remembered that from my first experience, then I set my own plan into action. And for those of you who are uh, coming into publishing as writers, and you may be Sri Lankan or uh, East Indian or a Native American or uh, Vietnamese, you need to know that the predominantly, if not all, white publicity department of whatever house you're going to be published by is not going to know how to reach your audience, and you're going to have to show them. You're going to have to tell them. You're going to have to come to them with a list of the radio stations, the TV stations, the publications, the uh, organizations in your community that will enable them to sell your, your book for you. That's what I had to do. I had to uh, random house new no, it wasn't Random House at the time, it was Putnam. Putnam knew nothing about the black church. They didn't know that that's sort of like the clarion call for what's happening in the black community. So I presented them with a list of, you know, some of the, the largest black churches across the country, pinpointing where I was going on tour and saying, look, here's the plan. Here's this letter, I'm writing it to, and you just fill in Reverend so-and-so, okay? Um, I'll write the letter, I'll supply the addresses, you guys get the books, I'll send you the letters, put the books with the letters, and send them on. And in that way, these ministers are alerted three weeks before I get there that I'm coming and would you please announce it on Sunday morning or put it in your bulletin, thank you very much, and here's a book for your trouble. And so that, that kind of thing was absolutely essential for me, along with the list of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, uh, the Lynx, Jack and Jill, those kinds of organizations that may not mean anything to white or late, uh, Asian or Latinos, but mean a lot to the African American communities. But I know that other communities of color have those same kinds of organizations or different organizations that are necessary should you want to promote your book. And I'm saying that go into this situation expecting to have to do that kind of footwork, because you will. Um, so I, I really, that was the biggest part, and I think furnishing with Putnam with those kinds of lists, which they went on and, and shared with the rest of their newly acquired black authors, but, but that's okay too, because I feel that there's room for all of us, was absolutely essential. That's part of the work of of being a writer. I, I at one time lived under the assumption that my work was done after I completed the book and sent it in, but I found out that I am my own PR agent, and without that in the beginning, I doubt if I would have met with the kind of success that I'm enjoying now. Um, I think things have turned around somewhat for 
some groups of people of color. In 1992, uh, Alice Walker, Terry McMillan, Toni Morrison wound up on the New York Times bestseller list together. That was unprecedented. Three African-American women on that prestigious list had never, ever happened before. And at that point, I think a lot of publishers woke up and, and said, well, gee, I guess we're leaving money on the table. Because obviously, uh, with those kinds of numbers, and you need numbers to get on that list, numbers being sales, it was obvious that those books were being purchased not only by African Americans, but by white Americans and other Americans. And that shattered some of the dearly held myths in publishing. And myth number one for African Americans is that African Americans do not read. Myth number two is African Americans don't buy books. And myth number three is that white people do not buy books written by black people. So these were the kinds of, of myths that I had to come up against when I was beginning. As I said, I've seen some turnaround, but not uh, in terms of behind the scenes. I've seen, and I think we're all seeing, uh, a lot more material about all groups being published now. But uh, until we get the people behind the throne, behind the power, uh, those numbers uh, can go, can diminish just as quickly as they've grown. So I'm going to take my seat. I've been told five to ten minutes. I think I've um, spoken my piece, and I will uh, be glad to answer any questions later. Thank you. I neglected to tell Bibi that it was up to the panelists whether they want to sit here or go up there. So you might see some people would just stay put or do both. So I apologize. Um, Leroy Quintana is a native New Mexican. He has his master's in English and a master's in counseling. He's a licensed marriage, family, and child counselor. He needs to talk later. Leroy is a Vietnam veteran. He currently has taught at a number of colleges, and he currently is on the English faculty at uh, Mesa College in San Diego. His publications include Hijo del Pueblo, New Mexico Poems, Sangre, Five Poets of Aslan, Interrogations about the Vietnam War Generation, The History of Home, and his forthcoming book, My Hair Turning Gray Among Strangers. He's the recipient of the Border Regional Library Association Award, a two-time recipient of the Before Columbus Foundation American Book Awards, both in 1984 and 1994, and a National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellowship. He's an author of both fiction and poetry. Please welcome Leroy Quintana. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I want to thank uh, Sofia Corleone, Marlene Cheng for bringing me here, first of all, and for Richard for contacting me and, and, and setting this up. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud to be here. I, I think uh, Bibi, if I may uh, refer to you on a first name basis, really covered a lot of things that, that for me are, are becoming more and more clear. I would like to start with the idea that I, I, I've been writing for 20 years and naively, it didn't occur to me till very, very recently that this is a business, that this is a business. Because I, I've always been, you know, the rebel poet, and it was finished and let people work with it and, and let them go out. 
and what I'm learning now, and I think what's difficult, and, and I'm, I'll address his, Hispanics, Chicanos in, in, in this instance very specifically, it's very difficult, I think, to come out of my culture and promote yourself. Uh, it's very difficult. You know, I still have, uh, I, you know, I, I still have to refer to older guys like, like Paul down there and, and, <laughs> and Richard here as Mr. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's hard because you don't want to get obnoxious blowing your own horn. But I'm beginning to learn that you can also do it with, with some sense of respect uh, for your work and for yourself and for the other people. But it's difficult, you know. Um, I want to say uh, that... It's very difficult, I think, <clears throat> for Hispanics in some ways in California. Uh, we have Gary Soto up in uh, Berkeley who's really has done 22 books that are going to be coming out. I'm talking about juvenile children's books that will be coming out, I guess, for now till the end of the, the next century. But with, with 187 out there, I think it, it, it's clouded up. Uh, a lot of issues about Hispanics. So if I go to my, my neighborhood bookstore, which is Barnes and Nobles, you may see uh, I found two of Gary's and my son likes goosebumps and, and you can find a whole shelf of that. And that's very difficult to deal with. And I need to address that in a couple of ways. One is uh, I have been primarily with, with small presses and, and I've done that deliberately because small presses will keep your books in print much longer. The, the, the other side of the double-edged sword is they can't do a whole lot of publicity for you because of limited budget and limited um, staff. So I'm learning, uh, as Bibi as said, you, you have to be your own publicity person, so to speak, because people don't know where to go to uh, promote your book or how to do it. You know, what, what, what forces are out there that can help you? Uh, Hispanic radio stations, that kind of stuff. And I, I think Bibi cleared that up magnificently. I, I, uh, one of the, the people who edited um, Paper Dance 55 Latino Poets with me, uh, Virgil Suar uh, Suarez, who is Cuban, left the publishing house in New York to go with Arte Publico in Houston because uh, they, they, they cut his book out. Uh, I have a couple of friends who uh, have um, been rejected, have manuscripts rejected uh, because the books were too ethnic. We'll, we can talk about that later. I have one friend um, who had a book coming out. They had a contract with the company and somehow they canceled it and pulled that money and gave it to, to Dan Quayle for his uh, promotional tour, and he was mad. He was very angry, and rightfully so, you know, because uh, Dan Quill, you know, first of all, I don't know if he needs it, but he has his own money to do that kind of thing. But it's important to, to realize that big presses make their money on, on the top five books that they sell, and now there's a, there's a, there's a tax on uh, storage that, that limits them to how long they're going to keep books because, you know, it's costing them money to have things stored, so it's much easier to remainder them or, or to simply just get rid of them. Uh, what else did I want to play? The, also, I think the idea of stereotypes, and I don't know how uh, B 
Phoebe or any of the other people here Maria, want, want to handle this, but one of the things that I also see happening is that you, it, it's, it's very convenient to get New York's version of Hispanics, <laughs> which, is, which is really a totally different from, say, our version or an L.A. version. And I think what, what, what's interesting about that is it plays well in Schenectady. What the hell do they know about tamales or anything like that, you know? And so you, you can get away with that kind of stuff, and, and you know, that's a little dangerous. Um, what else did I want to talk I think uh, in terms of advice, I think for, for writing, I, I would probably say, first of all, if you marry, marry well. And that... I, and that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't mean what you think I mean. Uh, it doesn't mean marry the daughter of a publisher. But I would, I would sincerely say make sure that you get a mate who understands what it is, what the hell you're doing, and, and can put up with it, because that's very important for a writer. And since we had been asked to, to say something about that. Uh, <laughs> I, but I think it's important. You, uh, I, I, I sincerely do think it's very important that... that because when children come along, you know, writing life is very schizophrenic, it's manic depressive, you know, if you're, I've, I've been waiting for six months to, for this damn book to come out, you know, and every time they tell me to, to uh, oh, another month or something like that, there's a deep, deep depression, you know, and, uh, and then I hear it's coming out and it's mania, you know, and I think you have to choose uh, whether you want to work at a job as I do, because I knew that working, doing poetry, I was not going to be that successful. So I have to work and do this in a sense on the side. And I, I, and looking out, I see so I, I see what I like because I see a lot of mature people. But just the fact that you're here, we have we have a saying in Spanish, which means that if, if you if you go to sleep with dogs, you're going to wake up with Please, be careful who you, you hang around with. If you hang around, hang around with people like these people here so that, so that you can learn something. I, and I, I tell you this, again, sincerely, because I was very stupid as a young kid, and I wasted uh, some of what, oh, what I probably would think were some of the best years of my life on fools, doing foolish, stupid things, okay? If you find out that you're here and then you really want to be a writer because you want to be a writer, hang around with the right people. It, it makes a lot of difference because your life is, is, is valuable. Other than that, I, I'm, I'm concerned also, uh, you mentioned affirmative action and what, that's gonna, what, is, what that is going to do uh, for the writing world, for the publishing world, because I, I, I sincerely believe that, that, that people should go to college if they want to be writers. Maybe not necessarily. That's just my belief. It's good to know traditions. <coughs> it's good to know good lit, and it's good to know bad lit. And I'm, I'm just amazed at, at, at how people, you know, I was, a, a, another thing is, uh, learn math. I, I, I uh, failed, <laughs> I failed math, I failed arithmetic in the fourth grade, but this I know. That it, you have 11% his, uh, Hispanics and 2% two, 2 African Americans in the UC system. I don't know what that tells, you know, uh, other people, but to me it says, you're going to do away with it? It doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it seems like you need to get more people through the system. If that's what's represented, uh, I would say keep the system because uh, I prepared myself as well as I could with, with two, uh, two masters so that I would have a safety net. And that was enough with affirmative action to get me in. And it's, it's not a cakewalk. 
I think the way people depict it, I mean, you, you, you have to be there, uh, you have to be qualified. And uh, I prepared myself, I think, the best way that I knew how. I went out and, and, and got as many degrees as I could. But uh, it's, it's shaky out there right now. And I, and I would tell you, uh, get a good education and prepare yourself uh, you know, for the worst and, and do your best. That's what I would say. Thank you. Marie Brown formed her literary agency in 1984. Or was it 1924? No, 1984. Okay. Let's get serious here. And um, Marie Brown Associates provides a number of services such as placing books for publication, marketing, promotion, public relations, book production, as well as packaging. Marie has 30 years of experience in the industry. She was a senior editor at Doubleday and Company. She was a buyer and assistant manager at Endicott Booksellers in New York City, editor-in-chief of Elon Magazine, and she's recognized uh, as a leader specializing in multicultural book publishing. She specializes in fiction, nonfiction, children's books, and collections of poetry by some of the nation's emerging and established authors. She also is on the board of the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses, Poets and Writers, and as mentioned earlier, advisor to Penn's Open Book Committee. Please welcome Marie Brown. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, Richard said that I should tell you that I'm a literary agent, and I think that he did that very well. And I thought that I would start with the business. Leroy mentioned the business of publishing. And literary agents, I think, are the front line as far as writers are concerned with the business of publishing. What we do is represent the author in all matters pertaining to the publication of his or her work. We develop proposals. We read manuscripts if it's fiction or poetry. We try to get it to that place where when we submit it to the publishing houses, they get it. And that's not an easy task. Um, we also identify interested editors and likely publishers. And how do we do that? Well, we do it through personal and professional <coughs> contacts. This means having a lot of lunches, a lot of breakfasts, you know, a lot of meetings. In the old days, we used to have a lot of drinks, but now we don't have drinks anymore. <laughs> um, that was publishing 20 years ago, um, the three martini lunches and so on, but that doesn't happen now. Um, but we meet, we talk to editors, we tell them what our writers are up to, what books we have that we'd like to submit to them, and we send them out, and we get them back. Um, everybody's enthusiastic at lunch and in conversations at various book um, publishing functions, and you package up the books, you write a great pitch letter, and as Bibi has alluded to, the submissions process, we send them out and we get them back until we reach that editor who understands the work, who understands the author's work, who can accept the work, who sees the potential because always the manuscript is not perfect, 
Um, always the proposal is not completely understood, particularly when people are not coming from your particular, particular cultural perspective. That's where my job is difficult. Um, as an editor at Doubleday for many years, I was able to sit around the table and I was inside. I could represent the writers, the authors, books, proposals would be submitted, and I could interpret it. It was almost like working at the United Nations. I mean, I could translate, and I'd say, this book is about, and you may not have had this experience, but now, as an agent, all I can do is write a letter, speak to the editors, but I don't sit at the table. What we're talking about is sitting at the table, sitting at the table. If you're not at the table, then you know you have someone else representing you. I think we understand that politically much more with what is going on in Congress and representation and so on. But it's the same everywhere. So that when I submit work to publishers, I have to rely on my ability to be able to send the message on paper and to ask someone else to take that message into that room and to interpret it so that then they could come back to me with a contract. Well, as I mentioned before, a lot of times I get a lot of rejections, but eventually I do, um, I'll stay with the project, I'll stay with an author for a long time because I understand the process of what is going on. I have one author, um, Gwendolyn Parker, whose first novel, These Same Long Bones, was published um, two years ago by Houghton Mifflin. But we submitted that novel for three years, three years. Everyone who saw it, read it, said, this is wonderful. This is a wonderful book. She writes so well, but who are these people? You know, middle class black people, I mean, a strong male figure, you know, a patriarch in the community. Uh, this is not realistic. So Gwen would meet with me periodically, and we would have breakfast, we would have lunch, we would have tea, and every time she came, I thought she was coming to fire me because I hadn't sold her book yet. And I said, Gwen, just hang in there a little longer. You know, um, you know, we're not doing six o'clock news publishing. You know, they don't get it. They don't understand it. And um, she hung in there. One day, Janet Silver, an editor at home. Mifflin in Boston called and said she wanted to buy the book, and I cried. Gwen cried. We were so happy. I mean, we just could not believe it. Three years later, the book was published successfully. It was reviewed well, paperback sale, movie option. Um, on the New York Times, Bear in Mind recommended for eight weeks. Um, selected by the New York Times Book Review as one of the best books of that year. Next book, advance three times as much. Next book, advance four times as much. The second book isn't even published yet. So, you know, that's what is involved in the process. Hanging in there, staying with the author, submitting the book until the contract comes. Most people know that agents negotiate contracts, and that's what we do just in terms of the business of publishing. We negotiate the contracts, and you can read all about that in some reference work. I won't go into what that involves. After the contract is negotiated, 
I feel that my next biggest job is holding the author's hand through the process because it's a long time. You know, even if the manuscript is perfect, it takes at least nine months to publish a book and many times longer. My children's book authors, it may be two years, it may be three years waiting for an illustrator to complete the work. So there's a long period there where the author is going through these changes until you know they see the book. After the book is published, BB is spoken to what happens. I mean, there's this euphoria. Wow, look, there's the book, you know, my name, picture, da 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 da. Nothing. Nothing. Because virtually the publisher has, you know, they've done their job. And just as the authors here have alluded to, the job of publishing is printing the book and securing a contract for you. But how does that book get to its audience? And that's the main job. So we go and do all the things that BB has alluded to, and uh, we continue to work. And we never stop, you know, we never stop. Even if the book goes out of print, we try to find another publisher. And then we offer career advice for the next books. And I'm doing this simultaneously for perhaps 10 to 20 authors at one time. And we're in various stages of all of that process. How did I get to this? Well, I mentioned that, you know, I guess I was an affirmative action baby back in the 60s. Came in during the civil rights period as a trainee at Doubleday um, out of the Philadelphia school system. I became an associate editor. This is fast forwarding it. Um, an editor, a senior editor. Um, I left Doubleday in the 60s, came back in the 70s. Actually, I moved to LA and I worked in a bookstore and um, looked for a job in publishing out here and um, thought, yeah, answered some ads. <laughs> and it was really funny because this was like in 1969, so you can understand where publishing was in LA in 1969. I'd answer <laughs> ads and, you know, ended up going to everything from adult publishing. I didn't even know what that was, <laughs> you know, until I got there. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> adult public. I thought it, you know, Relax. publishing for adults. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what it was. You know, Price, Stern, and Sloan were the only publishers in L.A. And I went for an interview there, and they wanted somebody to set their books and type. This was the beginning of computerization. And I could hardly type, let alone, I mean, I could see me setting a whole book, 400 pages. I said, you know, I can't do that. So, you know, I went and worked in a bookstore, I mean, which was, you know, um, something that was just so gratifying. And I did that, and I did some freelance editing. I moved back to New York, um, went back to Doubleday after having been there as a trainee and moved to LA and went back there. And um, Doubleday took me back because they couldn't find another affirmative action person. I mean, it wasn't the end yet. It was almost the end. I came in in 72, and they said, well, we're glad to have you back and read, but publishing has changed. Um, you know, you can't do black books anymore. Um, you have to diversify your list. And that was an interesting challenge for me. Um, and I said, well, I will continue to do books by all cultures, because I had, you know, by all authors. But um, in the meantime, I will diversify, because I don't spend 
24 hours of my life just being black all day. I mean, I may look like it, but I mean, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, we're cooking and eating and taking care of children and concerned about social issues and, you know, all the things that everybody else does. And that's what I did. And I did the first books by Rolling Stone Press. Uh, it was during the era of the disco madness that's you know I mean I go way back you know and I did those books with Rolling Stone and Jan Winter and I did cookbooks Spoon Bread and Strawberry Wine um, Spoon Bread and Strawberry Wine I did uh, Mary Helen Washington's um, first anthologies Midnight Birds um, and so that's how it was I mean I found that I could fit into publishing because I had a full life and I could do the work out of my culture and other cultures, but I also could do things that are of general interest to everyone. And I stayed at Doubleday. Um, I stayed there for a long time until Doubleday was going through some changes and we didn't exactly know what was going on, but people were leaving. I mean, they were just like fleeing. And at that point that I left, Doubleday was about to be sold to Bertelsmann, which is a trend in publishing now where larger companies come in and buy and, and it changed the whole face of publishing. So um, I left, went into magazines, magazine flopped, went to a bookstore, back to the bookstore, and that was, you know, always the greatest source of comfort because when I didn't know what to do in publishing, I became a bookseller because all of my peers in publishing said to me, well, Marie, uh, you don't want to be an editor, you don't want to come back inside because things are awful and nobody's publishing anything. And, you don't want to be an agent because nobody's buying anything. So I worked in the bookstore. I mean, somebody was publishing and somebody was, you know, offering contracts. I mean, if you want to find out, you know, how many, you work in a bookstore and you unload those cartons of books and you understand that publishing is really alive and well. So I did that. And it really gave me the confidence to become an agent. Um, it was not my choice. Authors found me, my pre-authors from Doubleday. Um, friends who are editors recommended that I agent. I didn't want to. People said, you're not mean enough to be an agent, you know? And I said, well, how mean do you have to be, you know? <laughs> you know? I said, I'll just, you know, develop my own style. I don't have to be, you know, like X, Y, and Z person. And so now with hundreds and hundreds of books under contract, you know, hundreds of authors, um, later, doing it my own way, in my own style, you know, I feel that, um, you know, I have followed my own path. I mean, we're here because we love books. We love words on paper. And I think that that's one thing that I want to convey to you. I mean, you're looking at us and you're saying, look at those people sitting up there and they're doing all this and they, I can't do that or, you know, because they've done, you can do it. You can do it. You know, um, because you have to know what you're interested in. You do the research. Weekly. Read some of the books on the publishing industry. Go to seminars such as this. Meet people like me, like Bibi. Meet authors. Go to writers' conferences. Go to academic conferences. They're always publishing people there. They're always selling their wares. They're around. They know somebody, and you know, know somebody who knows somebody. We have to establish our own contacts and our own networks. And we're not that far removed. It's just about asking. Out here, 
look at LMP. LMP is the literary marketplace. That lists every publisher in the United States and their addresses. Well, I mean, you know, they're not inviting people to send their resumes, but at the same time, you get some idea of who's in California, who's in the Southwest, who's in the Northwest. You don't have to come to New York. It's a good idea to do that if you can. Um, but, you know, there's publishing, and it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere, and you can be that much a part of it by just doing a little work and believing that you can. Thank you. Diane D'Andrade is a senior editor with Harcourt, Brace, and Company in San Diego. She edits picture books, nonfiction, as well as young adult novels, and also an occasional book for adults. Uh, adult books? <laughs> not the same. Oh, not the same. Okay. Changes. That's another, another discussion. Uh, Diane earned her, her BA at Douglas College, which is part of Rutgers University, and then attended the University of Connecticut and Boston Museum School. She has lived for varying amounts of time in the Mexican states of Oaxaca and Chiapas, as well as in Nigeria and Ghana. Prior to joining the Children's Department at Harcourt in 1986, uh, Diane assisted the managing editor of Harcourt's adult trade department and she also worked as man managing editor for a medical journal. Please welcome Diane D'Andrade. Thank you. Um, I am an editor in the children's book department. And you've heard now from some authors and from an agent, and I want to tell you a little bit about the editor, the one who makes a lot of the decisions about what will be published and how it will be published. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how editors are hired and how one might go about trying to get themselves hired. I personally came to publishing from an <coughs> intense career as a mother of four children. <laughs> I got into the business as a 50-year-old woman who had not worked full-time at a paid position for 30 years. You can imagine that I was not inundated with offers. I had had a part-time position as managing editor of the Journal of Electrocardiology, Circulation 2700, and I had worked part-time on a local magazine, and that was it. I did not know the difference between acquiring editors and copy editors. I didn't know what a designer did. I didn't know what a publicist did. I thought trade books were books that were published for carpenters and auto mechanics. <laughs> I had no experience, but I thought I knew a lot because of my work on the journal. During my job search, I applied for five separate positions at Harcourt, which had just come to San Diego. And I was turned down for these five advertised positions. I got finally so mad at the company that I, I wrote a poem that started Harcourt, Darcourt, Doleful, Brace. What a horrible, <laughs> terrible place. <laughs> but I still kept applying. 
eventually, I found out who the managing editor of Trade Books was, and I got an appointment with her just to talk about the business and see what she could tell me about it. Um, we hit it off, and when her assistant quit a few months later, she called me and let me know, and I applied again for a job with Harcourt, competing with the 200 others who had applied for this advertised position, and I won. And I was then assistant to the managing editor uh, for a couple of years before I moved into the children's book department. Obviously, I'm a little miracle. My point is, you can be a miracle too. Even if a big miracle is required, even if you have to apply 12 times, if you keep at it, you will win. Persistence is one way to get a job in publishing. And what job, jobs are there to get? Well, the best one is mine, I think, acquiring editor in children's books. Um, an acquiring editor finds manuscripts, gets manuscripts from agents, gets manuscripts from authors she's already worked with, gets manuscripts from the friends of authors she's already worked with, and from her own family. <laughs> <laughs> Um, every once in a while, a rare, rare once in a while, a manuscript surfaces in the slush pile. From the hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts each editor considers every year, she may select 10 or 20 to publish. That number could be higher or lower for editors at other houses, but that's about what it is at Harcourt and Children's Book Department. Um, at Harcourt, we have the unusual flexibility of being able to publish in both the adult department and in the children's department, and I have published myself books by Nancy Willard, Henrik Drescher, Ann Turner, people who have already uh, published books with me in the children's division. Um, the acquiring editor once she gets that manuscript and wants it. Works out terms with the author and with his or her agent, supervises the construction of the contract, and in the case of an illustrated picture book, finds an artist to illustrate the text. The editor edits the text, supervises the copy editing, and is the major contact an author and the agent have with the publishing house. When the book is set in type, an editor is one of those who proof the galleys. The editor works with the author to make any last minute corrections, works with the designer to construct a pleasing page design, and a great jacket. The editor supervises the marketing plans for the book with the marketing and advertising departments and bargains with the in-house marketing and advertising departments to try to get the best possible marketing plan for her book. And she is at this point in competition with all the other editors and all the other books that the house is publishing on that particular list. Um, I know that agents don't always understand <laughs> and neither do authors. But, um, 
regardless of how minimal the, the publicity or, or the marketing seems to be. Your editor has worked hard to get it. Um, the editor also watches over the reviews, monitors the supplies of the book to be sure there are plenty there and it doesn't need to be reprinted, and follows the sales reps' reports. And, one hopes, keeps the author up to date on, on everything that's happening with the book, all the while looking for the next manuscript. There are other positions, of course. Copy editor is one, the managing editor, the subrights people. Um, there's a lot of a lot of positions. Um, and now, how does an editor know what to publish? How does she or he dare to make such a decision? This is a good one. This is not a good one. Um, the answer to that question is very clear. The answer is by guess and by golly. That's it. Nobody knows. Nobody really knows. A good editor is one that guesses right a lot of the time. But they all guess wrong some of the time. I've become known as an editor who's willing to take some chances, and that's true. It wouldn't, for me, be any fun if I couldn't do the unexpected now and then. But it also means that um, a book that I consider one of the very best books I have ever published has sold a rollicking 2,320 copies in the six years it's been on the market. And curiously, it's still in print. I don't know why. <laughs> Other books that, that we might expect only moderate sales from go on to win prizes or get top reviews and just explode in wonderful sales. It happens that now is a very good time to sell manuscripts for or about minorities. Why is that? Is it because publishing houses have changed their tunes? Are they no longer racist or sexist or American? No, it is because society has changed. There's a new definition of politically correct, and it is now a very good time to get out there and sell books by, about, and for minorities. It's because they sell, and so publishers want to publish them. And that is also the most crucial reason why it is important to hire minorities into the editorial ranks. It is most important for some of the people who are exercising the guesses and the gollies to have a minority background and to understand what minority writers are out to do. I turn down hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts every year, and most of the manuscripts I turn down are the work of my own people, white middle class people. And they don't, they don't have, um, they don't have any option. They say, well, I guess she didn't like my manuscript. A lot of them say, boy, she's stupid. But they they know that there seems to be a reason for the turndown. With minorities, there's a, a real complication. There's always a doubt. Maybe she turned it down because it's about Mexican-American kids, or it's about African-American kids, or Chinese kids. You just don't know, and it makes it, that uncertainty, I think, makes it a lot harder to judge yourself and to judge your own work. 
it's terribly important to find an editor that you can trust if you're if you're out to to do some work like this and I think out to do writing work and I think that's another strong and important reason for diversifying the editorial staff in houses so um, I published a book not too long ago by a writer illustrator that I work with a good deal he does a children's book for us almost every season and he had just given me um, two or three projects and I didn't think any of them would work and we were kind of baffled to where to go and I said let's go back and see some of your old material let's pull out the file and and maybe there's something there that we've overlooked that with a twist we could we could make it work and he brought out a dozen projects that uh, I had never seen before but that were part of his history and I looked through those projects and I found one that I really liked I thought kids would just crack up and I said let's let's do this one and he said I'd love to he said I love that manuscript I am but I he said to be honest with you I have to I have to tell you that I have sent that out 37 times to different houses it has been rejected by every editor in the business including two editors at my own house at Harcourt and um, I have to admit I did think twice um, but I really thought it was a very a very funny appealing manuscript so I said let's go with it and we did and it was an incredibly successful book um, it's it's an illustration of the importance of having editors of all kinds of backgrounds with different points of view with different ideas it's it's terribly important and it's important also to to keep looking at different houses, at different editors, trying it here, trying it there. It may not be that the manuscript you've offered is not a good manuscript. It may be that you have not found the right house, you have not found the right editor. Again, persistence is what will get you where you want to go. Liz Williams is Director of Publicity and Marketing Coordinator for the West Coast Office of Ballantyne Publishing Group. Ballantyne is a division of Random House. Uh, Liz has been with Ballantyne since 1984, and she has held a variety of publicity positions at the company. In 1989, she moved from the company's New York headquarters to open their first West Coast publicity office. Uh, Liz is a founding member of the Literary Publicists of Los Angeles, she has spoken at several Penn publishing events and has been a guest lecturer at Cal State LA and UCLA on publicity and publishing. Please welcome Liz Williams. Stand and uh, 
stretch my legs a little bit. The first thing that I want to say about what you need to do to be in publishing is, um, I think, sort of obvious, is, which is you need to wear glasses. <laughs> so if you don't wear glasses, forget it now. Leave, leave right now. Or, or buy fake ones and, and, and do something that way. Um, it's really kind of unbelievable. I, I'm everybody wears contact lenses in L.A. I'm never with people who wear glasses. It's so refreshing to look down and see other people. I can't wear them. Anyway, now that you know a little something about me, um, I wanted to, I, first of all, I want to say that I'm very grateful to be asked to speak here because um, I deeply love what I do, and um, I feel very committed to what I do, and I feel very committed to publishing, and I feel very committed to spreading literature. And um, I, I, I come from the, um, the deep feeling that words have the power to change lives. They've changed my lives. They've saved my lives many times. When I was growing up as a kid, um, I didn't come from, as I'm sure many people did, the happiest of home backgrounds. And um, I would find refuge in books. And I would sit in my room at night and I would read. And when all hell was breaking out loose out in my family's neck, neck of the woods, I was in my bedroom reading and um, escaping. And then when I got older and had to deal with all of this stuff <laughs> from my childhood, I found books that helped me heal that way, too. So. Um, you know, I think books entertain and inform and change lives and um, are a great expression. And no matter what's happening with computers, I still feel very committed to the printed page. And um, that's one of the reasons why I stay in this field and why I love talking to people who want to get into it. Um, I'm a publicist and a marketing person. And um, fundamentally, uh, in publishing, if you're thinking about going into it, there are basically four, four places to go. Sales, editorial, design and production, and publicity and marketing. Those are the four biggest ones. And um, when I, I grew up in New York City, and uh, when I got out of college, I had majored in English, just a plain old BA in English, and um, did not want to be a writer and didn't really think of myself much as an editor. And um, one thing that I've always been very good at is talking. And you know, I, it wasn't just my opinion, it was everybody else's. Like, they could never shut me up. And um, I also was graced, I think, um, from birth with a lot of enthusiasm for lots of things. And so a lot of talking and a lot of enthusiasm equals a publicity person, fundamentally. And um, if you got those two things, you really can't go wrong in, in this field at all. And um, so when I got out of college, you know, I would like watch the Today Show and stuff, and there would be, you know, James Michener or somebody, a baby on TV, and go, she'd be talking about her book, and I would just think Brian Gumbel would somehow or another find Beebe's number, go, hey, you want to come on the show? I didn't know there was somebody behind that who had written a pitch letter and developed a press kit and then sent it to the producer of the Today Show. Brian Gumbel half the time doesn't see that stuff until 24 hours before he's set to interview the person, you know, and the, uh, the publicist had called four or five, six, ten times telling this producer why they should really have this author on, so on and so forth. And I didn't know about that, and I was very lucky to... Um, have grown up in an apartment building where a couple of people um, whose dogs I walked and cats I fed and kids I babysat for were in publishing, one of whom was um, an editor at Doubleday, Ken McCormick, and um, another of whom was um, a published poet, uh, Adrian Rich. And um, so I said, oh, gee, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do when I get out of college? And they said, oh, you should go into publicity, and you should go into publishing and publicity. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And so. I went to go check out, um, I went to Doubleday and I had some meeting with personnel. You know, I was just another kid that had come from school. I did not have distinguished grades. I did not have a distinguished, you know, I was the freaking homecoming queen or any of that stuff, you know. I didn't do any of that. Um, and I was really, frankly, very concerned because other than my personality, I didn't see why anybody was going to hire me. I didn't have great grades, you know. 
And so there I marched into Doubleday and, you know, quaking in my little shoes. And I said, oh, you know, Ken McCormick thinks that maybe I could be a publicity person. And, you know, it's the same thing with any personnel department that you go into. You try to do the best job you can do, recognizing that when you're coming out of school or even re-entering the workforce, you know, you got a million people that are going to be better than you and worse than you. And it's just to sort of say to yourself, here I am, I'm here, can, can we do something together, you know? And <laughs> I interviewed a lot of places, um, and I ended up not getting a first job in a publishing house. I worked for an independent p uh, PR firm. Um, the woman had actually been the director of publicity for Random House for several years, and then had left and opened her own agency. And I got a job with her at some staggeringly low amount of money. And that's one thing that nobody's really talked about yet here. They've alluded to it. but. <laughs> You know, I'm here to tell you that if you want to get rich, this is not the business. Um, rich, if you want to own a home in anywhere in the, the state of California, don't come into this business. I mean, this is, this is not a place to get, this is not like our brethren in the film business where, you know, assistants start at $28,000. I mean, I don't want to tell you how recently ago I was making that. Um, and so I, I had this job for something like $7,000 a year, and this was back in 1981. Actually, I think it was 8-5. I think I started 8-5 in 1981. And I typed labels, and I watched my boss train me through watching her about what it was like to develop a press kit and what it was like to publicize and market a book. And so I'm a big believer in entry-level jobs because I think they teach you everything that you need to know. I certainly was like that. Um, and. So I basically spent a lot of time in New York doing publicity. And basically what that means, I mean, if I had four hours, I couldn't tell you enough because it's, it's an exhausting and exhaustive kind of thing. But fundamentally what happens is the book gets written, it goes through an agent, it gets to a publisher, and then it, we're the last, the last leg of it. It comes down in a galley form, which is basically uncorrected proofs. And then we sit down and say, okay, what's the best way to market this book? What's the best way to promote this book? What is the audience for this book? And how can we get there? And I'm here to tell you that some publishers do that better than others. And I think that a publishing house is only as good as the people who are in it and their level of commitment and their level of knowledge. And that's going to vary as widely in publishing as it will in any other industry. There are some people who are very passionate and committed and workaholic freaks that stay up all night going, okay, let's see, how can I reach this exact market? And other people go, hey, we're just going to throw it out there. I mean, it's like supermarkets. Sometimes the Safeways are better than the Ralphs. God, I hope this isn't getting recorded and anybody ever writes that down. But um, So the point being is that when we get to... Um, when it, when it comes down to, to publicity, what you hope for and what I try to bring and what I know my staff tries to bring is a level of um, understanding and focus on who's going to read this book and how to get to that place. Um, it is always helpful. I will never turn down an author, a multicultural author or a not multicultural author, it, it, with their suggestions for how to best market their book because I come from the place that if you're going to spend two or three or five or ten years writing this book, you're going to know this book way better than I ever could possibly hope to. As Diane had said, I'm working at any moment or focusing at any moment on anywhere from 20 to 40 books. And as much as I um, do the best I can do to give as much focus as possible, there's just a numbers reality at a certain point here. So I really welcome um, authors giving me input. And I think that it's, it oftentimes can make the difference, as Bibi was talking about, between getting to a market and missing it entirely. Um, fundamentally, what we do, and it depends, again, from house to house, is we develop a pitch letter. We develop a press release. If the author is a previously published author, we get clips from um, reviews that they've done, interviews they've done over the years, over the books that they've published. We put it together in a press kit, and then we mail it out to the media, the media being radio, television, and print. We also do a lot of work with booksellers, which you'll hear um, next about bookstore events. That's certainly one way to 
to market a book is to get the author actually out there reading and writing, but a lot of authors are shy and it's not comfortable for them and they don't read well. And that becomes a bit of a challenge because if you've got an author who, quote, can't walk and talk, you become very limited in how you're going to promote them through that kind of publicity. So then you start focusing more on reviews, calling up your contacts in the book review media and saying, you got to read this book. This is so important. It's like this. It's gotten this terrific advanced quotes, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of it is selling. and. Um, Somebody was saying, I can't remember who, it, I, it might have been Marie, I'm not sure, about, um, about how she has to sell to, the, to um, the houses. And then we have to sell to the media. All of publishing is selling, right? You know, the agents got to sell to the editors. The editors got to sell to the marketing people. I was <laughs> laughing one day, I was talking about, you know, the editors come down, they go, we have to do a 10-city tour for this book. And, you know, you know that that month you've got already five 10-city tours, and you've only got four people in your publicity department, and how can four people do five 10-city tours, you know? So everything's about this and that and negotiating and balancing and trying to do the best you can do for every author. And a lot of times I feel very pained about this because, you know, I can't do everything that I could do or should do for every single book that we publish. It's just an impossibility. So, I mean, I was just on the phone with today with an author who was saying she didn't feel that she went to enough cities and she wanted to do more. And I had to say, you know what? This is just what I can do. Um, and I think sincerity goes a long way, too, in intention. You know, if you're saying, I'm, I'm really care for you, and, you know, is there something else we can do and work it out? Anyway, um, basically what we want to do as publicity people is micro-market, and that has become um, more and more uh, the way that we do business, because in the old days, I've been doing this since, like I said, 1981, you could just send an author on a 10-city tour. There was like a million radio stations they could be booked on in the afternoon. You could always get one or two press interviews for them, either with the book editor or the features editor. Then they could go on an evening talk show, do a book signing, and you know they would be exhausted by the end of the day. And um, with the rise, I think, in conservative radio, um, a lot of the radio shows that used to be general afternoon talk shows aren't there anymore. There are people like Rush Limbaugh taking two or three hours in the afternoon. He doesn't take guests. Even if he did, he wouldn't want to talk to half the people I publish, you know. And I don't think half the people I publish would want to talk to him either. So um, newspapers, as I'm sure you all know, their staffs are cutting back. We lost a, a paper here in Los Angeles a couple of years ago. They don't have the kind of staffs available to interview authors anymore. So we're really having to get a lot more, like I said, micro-marketed. Bibi was talking about the churches, you know, can we take an author to a church? There's also in the New Age movement a lot of unity churches that have big um, outreach groups. So when we have a New Age book or a spiritual book, we might send an author to like uh, Agape Church. They do a lot of stuff, I don't know, over there on the west side if you know them. Um, so it's really about sort of sitting down and, and even, even um, more carefully narrowing it down, narrowing it down, and then trying to reach the market that you can in the best way you can. Um, I think one of the things that I'm most personally proud about at Ballantyne um, is, regarding multiculturalism, is uh, five years ago, and I can't even believe it's been five years ago, we launched um, a wonderful imprint called One World, which was developed by five African-American women who are on the staff of Ballantyne Books, um, a senior editor, a marketing director, an educational uh, marketing director, um, a sales representative, and one of our design chiefs back in the New York City office. And they pulled it together to collect from our very rich backlist of multicultural writers, as well as some authors we were anticipating publishing or we had already had contracts with, to um, to really sort of carry on a vital literary tradition of diversity. I mean, I got to tell you, I'd be pretty bored if all I did was read about women who have had my experience. Um, and I think that, that the publishers are, have been waking up to that. And the fact that we were the first publisher, major publisher, out of the gate to make a concentrated and um, 
organized effort in that, in that direction was really amazing. And in fact, after One World had been uh, in existence for two years, it won the um, LMP Award for um, Excellence in Trade Publishing. So we've been really proud about that. And um, it's, it's sort of amazing, actually. One of um, what just this, no, not this week, last week, um, a wonderful um, Asian man who had started off as a Ballantine sales rep, then had been moved, he represented um, our books in Seattle, then he had a passion for Del Rey, which is um, our science fiction line. And he was a big Del Rey fan, and he was always like sending memos saying, I think we should do this, we should do that. They said, hey, you, you, should, you ought to come to New York and be our marketing manager. So he moved to New York to become the marketing manager of Del Rey, which is the leading science fiction book publisher in the world. And just last week, he was promoted to associate publisher. So that's an interesting perspective that he's now bringing, starting off in the field and then ending up in New York. Um, I know I got to stop, and I just realized I didn't talk about, um, and I want to just briefly, the difference between East and West. I'm very fortunate in that I got to start off my career in New York City and end up in a West Coast office. There are not as many publishers in the state of California as there are in a two-block radius in New York City. So I agree. If there's any way you can get to New York and start off there, it's going to be easier. That's a fact. However, I also agree with what everybody else has said here about enthusiasm and persistence. You know, I don't believe philosophically that there's anything we can't do if we try hard enough. I just don't believe that. I mean, if I did believe that, I couldn't do what I do every day, which is get rejected over and over again by major important shows. I don't want to talk to this author. Well, we did her last year. I don't want to do her again, you know. If I didn't have any, any persistence or any, any belief that we can do anything, I'd be out of this business a long time ago. So um, there were a couple of suggestions that were made here tonight. The Literary Marketplace is a terrific resource. It's at every library. It lists all of the publishers. And I say, send 100 resumes and make the phone calls and call again and check it out. There is no reason to not try that. Um, since there are lesser opportunities in Los Angeles, you will have to be, again, micro-marketing, much more specific. There's a lot of niche presses out here. Are you a lesbian gay person who wants to get into that? Allison Publications has just been sold to The Advocate, who are located in Hollywood. They're going to be staffing. Are you a person who is interested in Native American stuff? There's a publisher in the Southwest that's interested in that. Up in Berkeley, I mean, they're, they're all over the place. You just got to look. It's, again, it's intention. Do I want to do this? Is this my passion? Is this what I breathe to do? Do I want to be a part of this community? Then you just have to network, look at the resources, and check it out, and you'll get what you need to get where you need to be. I believe that, and I'm not going to sit up here and tell you otherwise. Because what a bummer if we got out of bed and thought, "Oh, I can't do this." You know, you can do this, and there's a lot of people that are willing to help and um, provide that vision. Because with what is it? Who said that? Without vision, the people shall perish. Right? I mean, we're at a, a, an interesting time in the millennium where where we need to all band together, and we need to have a multicultural, uh, diverse group in all industries so that we continue to, to meet the challenges that we are most assuredly facing as we go into the next bunch of the decades, but that's a different speech. Anyway, thank you very much, and um, thank you. Um, Paul Yamazaki has been a bookseller since 1911. <laughs> But 20 years, Paul has been the buyer at City Lights Bookstore, arguably the best literary bookstore in the United States, and he's been responsible for that as a buyer for, uh, for 20 years. Um, he is currently the chairperson of the board of uh, the directors of the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses, a wonderful advocacy organization for smaller independent uh -huh. publishing houses. He is uh, on the board of Small Press Distribution in the Bay Area. He's the uh, 
founding organizer of the Asian American Jazz Festival in San Francisco, and the founding advisor of the advisory board member of the San Francisco Jazz Festival. Uh, we go back about 28 years. I was just about four then, but <laughs> Paul was in college. To 1840. Uh, <laughs> and um, Paul's one of those few booksellers in the country that uh, the best editors from New York call to find out who's up and coming in terms of writers and what are the trends, et cetera. Uh, he's an advocate for writers and publishers and for our culture. Please welcome Paul Yamazaki. I feel as a bookseller that I, it's appropriate for me to be last. I'm the last link in the all from writer to reader continuum. But my real purpose tonight is not to talk about being a bookseller, but to talk about when I look at you out here and I look at this panel here, how unrepresentative it is and how in my over 20 years of bookselling that I've never sat in a room like this in a, in a, in a trade venue. That uh, I attend every year this uh, convention called the ABA, the American Booksellers Association, which last year was about 40,000 people. Less than 3% of those 40,000 people are people of color. And if you start taking off the authors, if you start taking off publishers of and editors from specifically publishers of color, uh, you start talking about something less than one and a half percent of people working in the trade house. So when you look at this table here, particularly when you look at, at somebody like Marie, that this is not representative. This is not what you're going to see when you go to New York. I mean, what, what you're going to often find, and I think many of the people at this table have found that you're the only face of color in the room. For a long, and for a long way, and these are big rooms. And, it's, uh, and what does that mean, that the fact that, that there is so little diversity in, in that decision-making process? And it, it means that what happens to Bibi, what happens to Gwen, it, the process takes so much longer to, to get to us as, as readers. And, it's, uh, and even when that happens, it's like even when the books are published, we, we miss so many readers. It's, it's, um, so I think we're kind of really diminishing ourselves when there is so much talent out there. I, I guess the one thing I'll say as a bookseller right now that I've, I consider myself so fortunate to be a bookseller in this period because there is so much good writing and publishing going on and the work of like dedicated editors and, and publicists is each day I'm the recipient of like, you know, the work of very talented people and the hard work of all these editors and publicists and agents, is, you know, pick up that book and that's what that represents to me. That's, uh, but I think the important thing is that when you look around in, a, in New York or ABA, it could be in Minneapolis, it can be almost any place that you see so few people of color and the ones who are there make such a difference. And that's the major thing I'd like to say to you all tonight is that working in the publishing industry can be so immensely rewarding in so many different ways. but for people who, who decide to come in is you can make a difference. I mean, it's like I've been very privileged over the years to work with Marie Brown. Uh, I've, I've sold a lot of the books that she's agented. I've worked with her on the, on the board of Council of Literary Magazines and Presses. Marie has made such an impact in this business. I mean, just you can see just what you've heard tonight, you know, how immensely talented she is, but it, it's she has no equivalents. Is, am I correct in saying that, Marie, that there really are, you don't have very many other African-American agents? 
four. Four now. And only about two of us who specialize in representing multicultural writing. And as grim as that number sounds in terms of the number of agents that you'll find listed, it's even worse for Native American, for Asian American, for Latino and Chicano. Uh, we're just, and, and we can go through every branch of, of, of publishing through, through editing, all the different type of copy editing, just up and down the line. We, we aren't represented. So when you look at that, you know, and, and I, I really encourage you when you get a chance to read Walter's article. This is, and like Marie was saying earlier, nobody has addressed this in a conscious way. We've spoken among ourselves, and it's, uh, but in a public forum, this was a really historic piece it appeared two years ago in the Los Angeles Times, and it's, uh, and it's created a huge ripple throughout the business. The fact that we're here tonight is because it, Walter spoke out, and that it's, uh, he continues to speak out about this, and that people like Marie continually push and push and push. But if it's just Walter and Marie and just a handful of people, that can be shunted aside. We need people like yourselves in there to be able to like work with us to like you know make sure that we complete this whole writer to reader continuum. Better. I mean that's I can't describe to you how much good writing and publishing there is out there right now, and it's uh, and how much of that is still not getting to the audience that it deserves. And it's um, <coughs> with that I'd like to leave time for all of us to be able to talk together. There's had a tremendous panel here tonight, and there's a lot of lot of things that we can discuss, and we can be here for a long time. But so, I'd like to thank you all very much, and I'd like to thank Sophia and Penn and then Malin and uh, New York for putting this all together. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to open up the floor to questions. I'm going to go over here so I can look more important. <laughs> Let me see everybody. Um, if you would uh, raise your hand, I'll call on you, and I'm going to repeat the question so that everyone can hear it. Uh, you can address your question to any particular um, panelist or just general. Um, any questions? Yes. question is um, this uh, tendency, or not a tendency, a trend, an actuality of, of uh, concentration of um, uh, publishing in, in fewer and fewer hands. And the, uh, is that a legitimate fear on the part of authors and other people? And, um, you know, can you speak to that? And I'll just mention before the panelists just a couple statistics on that. I did a little homework. but. Um, there are over 2,500 book publishers in the United States today. They publish uh, close to 50,000 books a year. They employ over 75,000 people. Yet although there are more than 2,500 publishers, 
all five produce more than half of all the book revenues in the country. And, uh, and the effect of this on issues of diversity, things of that sort. So would any of the panelists like to? Oh, yes. You know, I, I, think, I think it's very, very interesting that we get intimidated by that. But we have, we have two things that work for us. We can be mitoteros or mitoteras. You know what that means? Every time we're gossiping, you can, oh, by the way, you know, uh, the, uh, that guy next door finally left that old woman or whatever, or vice versa, or whatever. I said, and by the way, have you read Your Blues Ain't Like Mine? God, that's great. You should buy it. You know what I'm saying? Because I think, I think the, uh, the power of language, which is what we're invested in to begin with, can work in that respect. Because otherwise, if we let ourselves get intimidated with that kind of stuff, I, I don't think it's going to work. 52% of books published are romances. And we have to fight that kind of stuff. So it, it, if you support bookstores, and, I, and, and you know what bookstores I'm talking about, they can, they can order more stuff. And that can keep writers alive. I think it's, I think it's up to the it's some kind of individual commitment to say, you know, I don't make a whole lot of money, but when I go to, to buy books, I'm going to be real choosy to see who stays alive, and what word what words stay alive, and because some bookstores are committed to that, and if we don't support them, we're going to die, and, and uh, you know, we'll all be reading Rush Limbaugh or something. Any other comments from panelists? Yes, yeah, I would just like to say that that's, it's been happening with such rapidity, and this has been going on for 25 years ago, and I think it's an absolute legit, legitimate fear. We're seeing it right now, just in, through all aspects of the book business, and the most recently among book retailers, it's just uh, Barnes and Noble is dominating, and Borders is dominating the market, and it's, it's um, and what happens there is it basically. If they win the battle, right now I'm projecting that we're going to lose 30 to 50 percent of the currently existing independent bookstores throughout the country. If Barnes and Nobles and Borders wins that battle, that means all the work that's represented by those 2,500 publishers and those thousands of writers will be in the hands of like, you know, 30 or 40 buyers. And, it's, um, and it means that the diversity of, of, I mean, that's the great thing about being an independent bookseller is that we look at those 55,000 titles each year and kind of make, you know, just like Diane says, there's no real science behind what we do, and there is none. I like that book, I like that author, and we'll sell that. And it's, uh, but we, we will lose that diversity that, that's represented here in this room and that's that, and, uh, and represented in the writing, but that's not represented in the business of, of publishing. And that's what I, I'd just like to go back to the point that it's so important some of you here to, to really seriously kind of crash the gates and, and bang your head. And as Liz pointed out, you know, there are many rewards, but very few of them are financial. <laughs> I think the other thing for, for those of you to consider, even when you're doing your own book buying, I always insist um, that I go to independent bookstores on my tours. Um, particularly independent African-American bookstores like Esalon here and um, Marcus Bookstores up in Oakland. And I think it's, they cannot offer you, of course, the, the huge 30 or 40% discount that you're gonna get at Crown or Barnes and Noble. But I think the way you need to think about 
paying full price at an independent bookstore is that you're sponsoring authors <coughs> and you're sponsoring uh, the creation and the nurturing of new authors because these are the stores that bring in uh, the people who five, 10, 15 years from now will be the ones that uh, you're all buying. But they have to be nurtured along the way. And, and I, I can give you an example. There's a, uh, a bookstore in Philadelphia uh, owned by a guy named Larry Robbins. It's called Robbins Bookstore. It's a very old independent bookstore. When I had, I think from the first book I had, I was always at his store uh, reading. Then, uh, I don't think it was Barnes and Nobles, it was the, another big one. Borders moved right around the corner. They didn't want to touch me with a 10-foot pole. Um, this year, I did both. But I was not going to not do Larry's store because he had nurtured and supported me through the years when the Borders and the Barnes and Nobles wouldn't have me there. So I think it's important that you have to make that kind of, of commitment and understand why you're making it and that it's going to cost you about 5 or $6 a book. We'll take it, uh, Diana and Liz real quick, then we'll take another question. Um, I do think that it, um, a good portion of that worry should be directed to the bookstore. And, um, and I also endorse um, buying at independent bookstores, and I try to do that myself. I, and, I, and I buy a lot of books, and I buy hardcover books. And, uh, I know a lot of people who wouldn't buy a hardcover book go to the theater and they go to the opera, wouldn't think of buying a hardcover book. But I, I look at it, when I spend my money, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of paying my taxes. And this, I, I want to put my money where I want to see my world put its effort. So rather than spending it at the movies, I don't care how many movies they make, that's not where I like to put my money. I put my money on books, which is where I want my world to put its energy to. So um, I, I don't personally see um, trouble ahead yet. I, I think that we're still <clears throat> We're still in a good position. We haven't, we haven't lost a good deal from the concentration of publishing in a few hands, but we certainly are on the edge. Liz? I, I was just going to address the, the media issue. I, th I, I think that the opportunities are diminishing from where they used to be, but I... people who need to read them. Over here. Does anyone hear that question on self-publishing and the advantages and disadvantages? Anybody want to address that? I think probably as a bookseller, it's, uh, there, there are a lot of advantages. The major thing that I think that I, I that I see as a, as a disadvantage that I see this mistake made over and over again is that both B.B. and Marie alluded to it earlier, the publisher and author's job is not finished when the book is completed. And so 
what I see with a lot of independent presses and with a lot of self-published projects is that they never think about distribution. They never think about the reader. They don't know how to get it to the reader. And so there's a lot of ways or a lot of things that you must do as a self-publisher to educate yourself best how to get it to your readers. And that's, the, I think, the best way to think about it is like, you know, you start off as, as, as a writer and as a publisher, but your, your real goal is, you know, to, to bring your writing to readers and as many readers as possible. And so you have to educate yourself about distribution, marketing, publicity. And so it's, it's a huge challenge. And so you have to combine all the skills that are represented here at this table. And so that, that's kind of a daunting process. But there have been books that have been published by major trade houses that have started from like you know, self-published works. Uh, many literary writers have published their own first works. City Lights is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Lawrence couldn't find a publisher. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who's the owner and founder of City Lights, couldn't find a publisher for his first book of poetry. He published it himself. Mm -hmm. Forty years later, we've now gone on to publish 200 books. Lawrence eventually found a publisher for his works and is now one of the more books in print and read more widely than almost any other American poet. And it's, it's, uh, so there are rewards, but there's a lot, a lot of mm -hmm. kind of hard, concrete work that you must do if you decide to go that route. Questions? Yes, sir. Sure. So, sure. Everyone hear that question? Yeah. What kind of response to sending out books to community organizations <coughs> and churches, et cetera, in terms of marketing and promotion? What happened for me was uh, at many of the, when I went on tour, uh, the people showed up at many of the, uh, uh, the bookstores where I was reading. And I knew that because they identified themselves. And, and also I checked. I said, oh, this is, you know, I, I was in Raleigh, so that was St. Paul's Church. Is anybody here from St. Paul's? Paul's Baptist Church, you know. Oh yeah, pastor read it Sunday. So, you know, I, I had an inaccurate, non-scientific kind of approach to checking, but you know, that's, they just showed up at the book signings, and, which was my goal. Okay. Yes, sir. I, I, I just want to add a little. I, I think one of the things that we've addressed is the idea of, of, of getting it out to the people. But it's, we, we haven't considered the idea that if you're a publicist, how many review copies you do get. I have built a library on going to secondhand bookstores, buying an inside, here's your review copy that I bought for, for half price. And I think you said the best thing that, that, we, that, that we could have said tonight, you have to find really creative ways of, of getting this book 
into the hands of media who can review it for you. Because the, 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 the chances of, of, of it happening, I think, uh, I think <coughs> media people throw more or get rid of more review, uh, review copies than they, than they actually review. And so it's actually a, a good idea to get to know the review people by name in the newspaper so that you can say, Paul, my book's coming out. Because they're not gonna know you from anybody else. And if you don't find creative ways of, of, of getting into the newspaper or something like that, it's, it, you're gonna add to my library. And I'm gonna add to yours, you understand? And I'm gonna add to yours. I'm, 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 I'm serious about this. So you have to find ways, you know, uh, I'm sure that because you know a lot of people that work, but imagine if you didn't know. Listen, even knowing people, you yes. know, I was just at the LA Times um, last it, week because there's going to be a big book festival on April right. 20th and 21st. Mm -hmm. um, you should all come. That, in fact, would be a good place. There'll be a lot of publishers there. You can check out, talk to them, meet sales reps, and see what's going on. But I was down there the other day, and I, I just always st stop in there to visit the book review editor of the LA Times. And I always sort of feel 50-50 bad doing it because it's cool to see her, and it is depressing as hell to see her office because there's something like, I don't know the science of this, but I think it's, or the exact number, but I think it's something like over 40 to 45,000 books are published each year. And if you look at the LA Times Sunday Book Review, they review an average of maybe eight to 10 books a week times 52 weeks, that's what? Let's just get excited and say 700 books yeah. a year out of 50,000. Okay, so uh, you know, you go to the LA Times Book Review and you wanna kill yourself because of all these books you think, oh my God, how's my book ever gonna get reviewed there? And I'm paid to do this. so. It's again relationships, determination, persistence, and. And prayer. how many of those are, are are named people that that they're kind of bound to do anyway? Exactly. You know? That's the other thing. You know, when uh, they're not going to not review Bibi anymore. You know. I teach internet training at the Pasadena Library, but uh, yes, you can publish on the internet, but there's all kinds of touchy copyright, and you'll never get paid for unless, you know, and that's being ironed out The groups like the National Writers Union and the various publishers are dealing with those issues. Because yes, in a certain sense, the internet makes everyone and anyone a publisher in cyberspace, and so it's just, it's too soon. Uh, in terms of the, the specifics, maybe afterwards you could talk to people about the specifics of that, but, but there are books now coming out, and I would, uh, and articles, more and more articles on the issues that you're addressing, you know, in terms of self-publishing in various forms. Um, but there's, we don't have a lot more time, I just want to go around, over here. Um, I've been, uh
that um, they're, they're buying the book before it's written, or is this an author who gives them a proposal, or they find out that there's a proposal in the works and this book is halfway through, or, or are they? My understanding was that what they're doing is pitching the script, and no, they're only buying books that can be made in film. Yeah. I'll just give another example. It? It's, it's hard to talk about. They won't, like Liz talked about some authors great writers but cannot read publicly. And a lot of times you won't go on a tour unless you're good in front of a camera, you know. And it's sort of, it is ass backwards. And, and that's been going on a while. A movie and then making it into a book, that's usually not very good. But I, I read the article. I, I was, I was uh, somewhat intrigued by it until Tartikoff mentioned Robert De Niro. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to get a good book, and and to sell the the, the film, they're going to have to get somebody who's uh, high profile, and there goes the book. I don't think it's going to be anything different. That's that's what I saw. Uh, it, it's nice that they're going to do books, but it's all to how they do them. And I think it's going to be the same old thing. You get uh, Demi Moore doing the Scarlet Letter. And <laughs> you understand what the, the laughs. Speak for themselves. Any other comments? Um, back there? Yes, sir. No, it's God. just being. Oh, <laughs> I was just saying it's God. No, it's yeah. a joke. <laughs> it, it's God, and she's trying Everybody to figure out what to do now. Right. But no, it, there's no answer to that. It's just being debated now. So there's there's no real what answer. Well, that actually, it's another panel, yeah. which is a good idea. I don't know. I don't know. Most libraries have it, yes, sir. Not writers, uh, uh, just a handful of publishers uh, um, receive the majority of profits from uh, publishing, that's what I said. Okay. Uh, over there? Yes, sir. This is good, this is good. He yeah. brings the flyers, you see? If you're self-published, how do you, um, well, the way that the um, major um, trade publishers do is that they contact, I mean, it's a subsidiary rights fu function, just as um, selling any of the rights um, for first serial to magazines and newspapers 
um, selling the paperback rights entails contacting paperback publishers. And um, often um, finding out their interest. And so what you would do basically as a matter of research is to go into a bookstore and to look in that category that is similar and to first identify those publishers who are publishing books that are similar in content or category to yours and to um, contact them. Um, it's not an easy task because, again, these networks are already set up, but it's something that is not impossible. It just entails your making all of those contacts and making your work known. Um, and it has been done. Um, the foreign rights, they are foreign rights agents as well. And if you consult Literary Marketplace, LMP, the foreign rights agents are listed there, people who handle rights for um, uh, rights around the world. So it's a matter of contacting them in the same way and um, finding out their level of interest in your book. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you don't need a publisher if you want to be a publisher. I mean, that's essentially what you've done is to do what the publisher does. But again, you have to be responsible for the sales, marketing, and distribution. Um, and how do you get into those channels? I mean, if you're going to sell your book, for example, a lot of people who self-publish um, have set up a series of seminars and they travel the country doing whatever it is that they do or they're you know locked into some network that is supportive of whatever the content of their book is but if you're writing a novel for example and you would like to reach the largest possible audience or have that option to reach the largest possible audience then that's what publishers provide for you. I mean, they are plugged into the book-selling network. I mean, at least the, um, a customer walking into the store who has heard of your book, even if the book isn't even in the store, they have the option to order it because they know where to get it if they've read a review or so. But I think that the distribution channels really are the key to whether or not you want to publish yourself or you want to give it to a publisher. And then the royalties, um, the percentages uh, vary. Um, they're standard hardcover royalties, 10% um, on the first 5,000, so 12.5%, 15% on the next 5,000, and 15% thereafter. Um, and um, the, the paperback royalties vary. These are royalties against advances. Advances can be from zero to, you know, you name it, millions. millions but they often fall <coughs> far short of the million mark. <laughs>
I've written both. Um, the first two books were nonfiction. The second, the last two were fiction. Uh, the difference, I think, for a novice is, and I think this still holds true today, Marie, that for the nonfiction book, uh, what I needed to get it purchased was an outline that was about 30 pages and a sample chapter. Uh, if I had been trying to sell my first book and it had been a novel, I would have had to have a complete novel. They wouldn't have bought it on, a, on an outline and a chapter. And it helped that, of course, that I had some other clips to show my writing, you know, that I'd done for magazines, that kind of thing. The focus of the tour, the publicity machinery for fiction and nonfiction is a little different. For fiction, they want to get you into the bookstores doing readings. For nonfiction, it's more talking, uh, talk shows, uh, print, reviews, interviews, that kind of thing. You want them for fiction as well, but you, you want to get into the bookstores for you basically just have more opportunities in the media for nonfiction because you you have probably experienced this yourself if you turn on the new news or any any television show here in Los Angeles most of the people you'll see on television are nonfiction people telling you how to do something you know thin thighs in 30 days how to deal with your mother-in-law who's driving you crazy uh, how to secure money in the coming investment blah 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 politics a big topic you know it's a lot harder to interview a fiction author because the limited vision of some media people is that the only thing they would have to talk about is the plot of their book. Mm -hmm. And it's more difficult to publish fiction because it's subjective. Um, it's a matter of style, content, and so on. It's easier to sell at that table that I alluded to a nonfiction proposal because a lot of people can write great proposals. Now, it's another matter about mm -hmm. the book. Well, we're not you even going to discuss poetry. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, going back to the idea of, of, of advantages of going with a publisher, First of all, you know, it, you, it, it's, it's important to have an objective point of view. If I had published a lot of the stuff that I was in love with, of my own stuff, um, it would have been disastrous. It's good to have an editor who's involved, but still not involved, who can be objective and, and say, hey, man, this doesn't read well. Headaches, I don't know how much time you want to spend designing a good cover. They do that for you. A typesetting, uh, you know, and you have some say in, <clears throat> in what you can do. And and my message, as long as uh, along with everybody else's, if you believe in your product, keep hammering. You know, uh, you know, you just got to keep doing it. Maybe try a small press, and they, they can sell that later to a big press. That's happening a lot now. University of New Mexico Press, uh, people like that have sold people like Anna Castillo's book mm -hmm. big time. She's making a lot of, and she started out with UNM mm -hmm. Press. There's, there's all kinds of possibilities, but if you don't circulate a network and find out who's doing what, to whom, or whatever, you don't know. Right over here.
sorry to tell you that what they're looking for is someone who already is an actor. And it, it is very, very hard to come in as an actor. And mostly what happens is people get a job at a public house as publishing house as an editorial assistant, as a marketing assistant, or something of that sort, and they very slowly and painfully work themselves into an editorial position. Um, there are a lot of ways to help yourself be one of the people who's chosen as an editorial assistant, and um, one is to be familiar with computer technology. That's very important. Um, another is to is to go to some of these publishing institutes. There are there are several that are two to four week institutes at um, at various colleges or, or gosh, I, I I can't give you the names of any. Stanford, to tell you. Stanford has one. Radcliffe, Stanford. Denver, Denver, yeah. Denver, NYU. Something else, Howard. Yeah. And no, they, they can give anymore. you a real quick working knowledge of the of the lingo and the and the practice of doing editorial work. It's an immense help in uh, in showing your commitment to wanting to do editorial work. For <coughs> one thing, just for openers. And, um, and also in, in giving you a little bit of information about how it's actually done. Yeah, and you make contacts there because the faculty of these institutes, again, are people who come from the publishing experience. But what I would say mainly is that um, it's an entry level job experience. Um, and that's how I started uh, as a trainee and coffee and typing and whatever, <laughs> you know. Stanford, Denver, NYU, Radcliffe, um, Pace University has a, a program, uh, NYU has a full program, and there are scholarships available um, if you write to these various institutes. I think that they are also listed in the LMP. Yes. There are in the LMP and also there's other directories that libraries have of, of that, those resources. Poets and writers usually runs an ad of workshops and who's doing editing. And that mm -hmm. stuff. Poets, Poets and Writers yeah. magazine. I was going to mention later, but there's a lot of resources out there. You can get their magazines at uh, libraries and bookstores. Poets and Writers and other associations are really a great resource for small press publishers as well as for writers. We take about two more questions. And we have a couple of announcements. Uh, any other especially yeah. people involved in publishing? Mm -hmm. The question is, in terms of diversity of people who are not uh, people of color, their role. Well, um, I'll just say that, again, I think Walter Mosley in the manifesto and, and what Paul mentioned, that article that we have out here speaks to all people. In other words, it's, just, it's a question of educating ourselves. It's a question of the future of our society. And I think people can play a role in terms of, someone recently said African, you know, Black History Month is a question of sharing history. And I think that that's what it's really about. Um, 
just educating ourselves to have the kind of society where we can all learn and, and, and in terms of what people have in common and people's um, different cultures and differences. So that's what really it's really about, um, inclusiveness in that sense. Um, otherwise, we're doomed, I think. But anyway. Being open. I, I think I want, I want white editors to be open to the idea of a novel about an African-American middle-class family or uh, a Latino astronaut or, and not say, oh, that, that's unrealistic. And I, I want uh, white editors uh, to ask questions when they're on unfamiliar ground. Um, you know, a question like, gee, this, this character seems angry to me, this, this mm. black woman you've created. Well, no, I think she's strong. You know, so, so that you can get a different perspective. So I guess just being open and willing to ask the questions so that uh, the, the editor can get an education and, and see the need of, of the work that's being presented. I think what, what's happening is we're, we're, history has been property. And we're getting away from the idea that history is just our property. And when we make it more open, everybody has some form of history they can relate to. But nobody has one claim on how one thing is interpreted. I would also just add to that, keep reading. Keep yeah. reading outside of what your, your experience is. Go to the bookstores. See a book that you go, wow, what's this? You know, I mean, it goes back to the whole point of why we're doing this, right? Reading, the, the power of the words to inform. Check just it out. To comment, add a little bit more to that, it's, it's just, History is, is something that's so important when we look at like what's at, who's currently out of print right now. You know, just in, I guess the most notable thing that Im pops immediately to my mind is, is uh, I think one of the great writers of the post-war period is Al Young, who's one of the yeah. great narrative yeah. writers. Yeah. None of his fiction is currently put now. Here's Al is still a relatively young man, he's mid fifties, late fifties now, and he's still writing. And just it's uh, the fact that none of his six novels are in print and having a difficult time finding a publisher for his, you know, just, and, and we could, all of us could like contribute to a list of people who are out of print or who have been in the last decade out of print for long periods of time. So, that reading, interrogating your own, your own assumptions, I think that's kind of the big enemy is that people assume how they think is the world and it's not the world. Any other uh, comments? Uh, yes. Interns. Some work does not. Well, some publishers do. There, you know, um, are no consistent programs. I mean, it changes. I mean, one year, you know, Doubleday has a trainee or an internship program, and then, you know, three years later, they don't. You know, um, but it just varies. I mean, a lot of the smaller um, independent presses. Uh, you can certainly volunteer to work with them because they always need extra hands and you certainly learn, you know, 
the process of publishing because whether you're working for a small independent press or a, a large one, it's still going through the same process to get the book published into the reader. I want to recommend a book that I just found, an excellent book that has a basic uh, description of what the different uh, roles are in publishing. It's called Careers for Bookworms and Other Literary Types. And it's great. It's, it's um, by, uh, the authors are Eberts, E-B-E-R-T-S, and Gisler, G-I-S-L-E-R. But it's a great book, Careers for Bookworms and Other Literary Types, because it describes in detail agent, editor, publicist, bookseller, librarian, etc. It does say one thing that I uh, quarrel with. It says if you want to read, get a job in publishing because you don't have much time to do pleasurable reading, you know, uh, except late at night. But it's, it's an excellent resource, and, and I think we'll go into more detail in terms of some of the things tonight. I also want to encourage you to stop by Essa Wan's table to uh, get a copy of our author's books as well as look at the other books on publishing. Uh, stop by. Penn has some literature here on Friends of Penn, as well as its newsletter and the uh, Open Book Manifesto and the article from, by Walter Mosley. And uh, thank you all for coming, and thanks our panelists. And stick around if you have some time.